Yeah, I think the number one thing that should always be considered is what what is the business objective that we're trying to uh, to secure? Um, securing data without the the business goals in mind uh, will we'll introduce that friction almost immediately. Welcome to Evolved Radio, where we explore the evolution of business and technology. I'm your host, Todd Kane. Today on the podcast, I'm chatting with Gabriel Gumps, CIO of Spirion. Gabe had an early passion for technology and focused on the security field. Gabe has a deep experience as a security practitioner. In the interview, we discuss where people tend to go wrong when implementing a security framework. We discuss some of the industry frameworks and how they can be leveraged for your own needs. We also touch on the necessary balance between security policies and user friction. I hope you enjoy this thought-provoking discussion with an innovative leader in the security and privacy space. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you get every new episode. Also, if you wouldn't mind, please leave a rating and review in your podcast app. This helps others find the show so we can reach more of the community. Now on with the show. Joining me on the podcast today is Gabriel Gumps. Welcome, Gabe. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, so to kick things off, if you'd like to give us a bit of your background, maybe how you got into IT and specifically the security field. Yeah, absolutely. So I come from a bit of an engineering background and found my way to IT as, uh, as kind of a, an intersection of that. So a little bit of a programming background, although I was not a, an actual programmer by trade, um, but you know, studied some programming, things of that nature in school. And uh, I started my IT career actually on the networking side of things. So I began in, uh, in network operations, uh, building internets, intranets, and some WANs, et cetera, um, and had been uh, interested in the security side of things throughout that part of my career. And and then began studying and uh, and learning some of the the, the details of of uh, the the security craft, if you would. Um, so you know we're, we're dating back now over twenty years, and uh, yeah, I guess it's a little over twenty years. That seems about right. Um, you know, started taking some some formal courses through some of the. Uh, the, the certificate programs that were out there, you know, the SANS and things of that nature to build on things that, that uh, I'd also learned as part of, you know, my more formal schooling, et cetera. And it's been a lot of time also um, uh, in the scene, if you would. So there was a very healthy community of InfoSec uh, folks running around the New York area at the time. The Alt 2600 group was still fairly active. Um, my my local uh, New York Linux user group was fairly active as well, too, probably is these days. And there were a lot of folks that were equally interested in security. Um, and then I got my first, uh, I got my first kind of start in the security um, as an actual paid gig uh, through some consulting work. Very cool. All twenty six hundred. That's legendary. It is. It, I guess it is legendary at this point. Yes, it's uh, legendary and, and absolutely carbon dating at this point. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the background. Um, so, I uh, you, in our previous discussion, you had an expression about uh, building your your own uh, security stack, and the sort of the working title for for this podcast is "Your Security Framework Sucks." So, you want to give us your expression around uh, that philosophy? Well, I got a couple. I, let's see. I think I know which one you're referring to. There's so a security framework go is someone who's who's equally taking their hand at crafting one. Um, yeah, they all suck, and uh, and everyone has one. Um, but rolling your own framework is like rolling your own crypto. One, one of the reasons why you don't do it probably 
probably the most important reasons, although there are a number of them, is that there are a lot of tried and tested uh, frameworks out there. No need to recreate the wheel. Now, adapting those to your circumstances, your business models, I think is the more important part of that exercise versus attempting to look at all the ones out there, coming to the same assessment I did, which is none of them are great, um, and then attempting to roll your own because that's almost guaranteed to be um, a fool's endeavor as well, uh, especially when you've got frameworks um, tried and tested, like the ones that, uh, you know, from the NIST, uh, the, the, the NIST Corporation, et cetera. So rolling your own is uh, is both a bad idea and uh, they all stink. Yeah. Okay. So we've got NIST, CIS, SOC, any of the whole list of the others. Is there uh, any one that you tend to lean on or prefer in, in sort of the general circumstance for, let's say, you know, the, the typical audience being SMB to midsize? And I think the obvious answer is as well, it depends. But do you have a sort of a, a framework that is either the best place to start or if you, uh, maybe fits better into that SMB and midsize group? So in the SMB and midsize group, I find that you're going to have a lot more kind of hands-on by one individual wearing multiple hats kind of thing versus the the ability to discreetly separate and, and segment duties, responsibilities across different departments, etc. Um, so a framework like the the NIST uh, data data security framework, I find lends itself well to that in so much that it's very practical and prescribed, right? So there there are very described and prescribed methods for what you need to do to secure data in your environment, which is ultimately what you're looking to do. Um, and at the SMB level, I find it's it's even more important. Not so not so much that it's less important at other levels, but at the SMB level, you're probably going to be outsourcing some of your network security, um, overhead administration, et cetera. Maybe maybe to some type of MSSP or something of that sort. Um, it really kind of depends on where you are in that maturity and life cycle. But uh, that NIST framework does get very prescriptive and here are the things that you need to do in order to achieve these outcomes kind of thing versus uh, CIS, I, I think is useful, but I don't know how well it applies applies at the SMB level. I'd be talking out of turn if I if I tried to make that assessment. Um, I need someone who's actually tried it at that level to actually weigh in. But my gut tells me that it probably requires a bit more bending and uh and, and flexing then that you might find the useful. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I kind of feel the same, like the the experience that I have with NIST and CIS NIST is a, a good sort of uh, uh, roadmap but it, it lacks in sort of specific implementation. So people hear about NIST and then they go and collect it and they're like, okay, well, here's a 40-page document that I could read through that's basically just a white paper talking about the things that you should do to have uh, uh, proper security. Uh, or you can have, you know... Um, an Excel spreadsheet with a list of things, but it isn't really directive. It's it's sort of uh, lacks a little of the implementation, I find, whereas CIS is a, a, almost too deep down into the implementation and demonstrating work. It feels much more of a compliance framework for the security to audit and check that things have already been done. Uh, so there, I, feel, I, I feel like there's sort of somewhere in the middle that is, is the happy medium, uh, potentially leaning on some parties or uh, like a third party or a consulting group that uh, sort of has a better 
uh, operational framework for for NIST is probably a, a good place to start as well. Agreed. Thoroughly agreed. Um, and that's why I think I said data, data security, but the NIST privacy framework, that one in particular, which was just updated in January of this year, does get a little bit more into the implementation details, which is very necessary at that level, because you're not going to have a bunch of SMEs around subject matter experts, that is, that you can, you know, just kind of shoot an email over to or hit them on Slack and ask questions. It's a lot of hands-on kind of doing on your own. So you need the implementation details. Yeah. Where would you sort of draw the line between those two things, right? Because you you have a, a podcast as well, Privacy Please, and imagine you focus uh, much more on on the privacy side of, of security and, and the use and, and implementation of that. But data and security, I think, is where people tend to think about the importance of security. Do you have sure. sort of some thoughts on the division between those and where the overlap is? It, I was going to say it's more overlap than there is division. And in fact, on the podcast, we focus on the intersection of the two versus the discrete privacy versus security. Uh, it's 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 all on the intersection of the two, and that is the areas where you cannot have privacy without security, but you can have security without privacy. And so we do we do discuss some of the, the the details of what it means to be able to achieve those those two aims. Um, and where I draw the line, if you would, uh, usually ends again kind of at the implementation. So there is the I have secured I have implemented controls to secure data. So let's let's just let's just get real tactical for a second. Let's say I have a database with customer information. And that information, uh, let's just say it's, you know, it's order fulfillment information. So it's names, addresses, credit card numbers, you know, things I need to fulfill orders for customers. And so I will do, I will implement all the, the proper controls to ensure that that information is safe. So it can only be accessed by the correct uh, individuals within the organization. Um, so, you know, only those that need to be able to see that information to fulfill the order. Maybe no one, maybe that just, that happens automatically between an order fulfillment system as well. Uh, I'll, you know, make sure you you have those systems um, hardened and that they're always patched. You know, just the basics, the absolute basics in security controls. You use controls, like I mentioned as well. Then you use your network controls. That system should only be able to communicate with other systems that are part of the that, that delivery of service, et cetera. Um, for the most part, I will have handled most of my security obligations. If I implemented my least privileged access as well um, to the appropriate data sets, uh, then I will also achieve some level of privacy, right? So, so that not everyone in the organization is able to see it. But I still equally have some additional privacy um, considerations. Is this information that I use to market to individuals? Is this information that I share with, uh, let's say, you know, may- maybe I've got some data analytic folks in house, um, or maybe I outsource some things to, to data scientists but I can understand more of my customers buying behaviors. Do I start running afoul of privacy at that point? And what controls do I need to complement my security controls in order to, uh, to provide both layers of those things? Um, and I think security professionals are inherently understanding of, of privacy, although it was not something that uh, was discreetly practiced across the board, if you would, if, if I can just throw out some generic statements there. <laughs> 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, so moving to sort of the security evolution, um, the you know security is getting to be a bit slippery at this point, especially with the push to work from home now. Uh, rather than containing and securing a localized network with maybe some VPN access on a on a on a minority basis, the majority is now either VPN or uh, some type of remote desktop or VDI scenario with everyone working from home, which uh, obviously increases the 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 uh, the uh, the footprint for what you're trying to secure. Any thoughts on sort of how security and the need for security and the implementation of security controls is changing with the expansion of the network? How it's changing. I think you, you've highlighted one of the per- the the primary ways it's changing is that uh, those boundaries have become even further eroded. If that was at all possible, you know, we've been talking about boundaries. Um, having been eroded for for a while now with the introduction and adoption of of cloud uh, platforms and SaaS applications. I think where you're seeing the biggest change is now equally on the data side of that. All of that data is now living, residing, being created and used at all of those little tendrils that extend outwards from the boundaries. Not to oversimplify or... or, uh, or take away from what it requires to to secure those boundaries, but I I, I do see that as as uh, a little pale in comparison to securing the data in those environments. Right, um, we've seen some really great advancements in the network security side of the world in the form of uh, you know SASE SASE um, solutions to to kind of try and redraw boundaries, if you would, around all of these disparate technologies that are all part of our ecosystems. Um, we don't see similar things at the moment for data security. And so, you know, kind of the approach that, that we, we've been taking is first getting a handle on where all that data is so we can then discreetly apply the right controls to it. And I think that's where the biggest challenge is right now is it was hard enough understanding what information you had to to uh, to secure and where it was inside of your environment. Now your environments have multiplied because right to the point you just made, now every single person working from home is a discrete environment in themselves. So what information do I have there that, that requires security? Because it, much like you would if that boundary was smaller, you still don't want to apply just one control to all of the data, right? That would not, that just logically doesn't make sense, right? Like, is it is it the right thing to do? Will it Will it create additional friction in the way those users um, behave and share information? Because if it does, they will find a way around it. They'll simply disconnect from the VPN and email it through their private emails, et cetera, right? So you you can't, if you just apply that one big mallet of, we're just going to VPN all the things and encrypt all the things, as that introduces friction into the user's uh, work environment, they, they will find ways around it. And it's that much easier to find ways around when they're at home, isn't it? It's easy enough for me to wormhole something from one machine to another, USB, you know, drive, copy, whatever the case is. So you've you've got to start putting boundaries around the data itself, which which I think is a, a significantly greater challenge. Um, but again, I I, I I hesitate to uh, to downplay the the larger efforts required around this entire shift to work from home. Right. One of the elements that I've seen sort of a rise in discussions about and, and some, some uh, sort of mental exercises at this point is, uh, is around the zero trust model, where effectively nothing within the network or the people or the data trust each other until the, the, those connections are verified. So it doesn't matter where those connections come from, everything is untrusted. Um, do, you, do you see 
that is sort of a better approach to this uh or so that you're you're kind of assuming nothing about who is allowed to touch what and who is allowed to access what locations i see it as uh, again another complementary approach i i argue a necessary one um we'd always thrown around the phrase you know secure uh, or uh what's the phrase i'm looking for here trust but verify right trust but verify inherently suggests a zero trust model right um or maybe it's maybe it did maybe because you lead with trust and then verify that uh that, that may have been the exact opposite of zero trust depending on how you interpreted that phrase i've always kind of saw it more as a yeah, I will accept that connection and then test whether or not it is uh, it is one that should be allowed, etc. I think zero trust is a mandatory and necessary way to go. Again, especially as all of the interconnections break down, um, you can no longer just assume that trust is granted or should be granted based on boundaries or, or known entities, etc., um, especially considering that we operate under the the model that uh, things are are compromised, right? Um, systems are are easily compromised from an end user perspective, and uh, and so zero trust really adds to that. And when I talk talked about you know SASE the secure access service edge, um, they were designed with zero trust models uh, by. Uh, by default, and and again, I think I see we we see some great success there. And a call back to NIST. I think NIST also released their zero trust framework. Was it earlier this year? I think it was earlier this year that that uh, that hit the wire. Also, that's great. I'll uh, I'll link to that because I think um, that that will be a much more sort of prevalent um, implementation that people will need to start to consider as well. So uh, oh, that's what it was. So it wasn't even that long ago. Okay, when was it? Sorry. August 2020, August. and it's uh, 800-207. Okay, perfect. We'll link to that. Um, you mentioned earlier the, the the friction point between security and users. Um, do you want to expand on that around uh, from a framework and implementation standpoint, things that you should consider in order to limit the friction while you're trying to establish or re-implement security controls? Yeah, I think the number one thing that should always be considered is what what is the business objective that we're trying to uh, to secure? Um, securing data without the the business goals in mind uh, will, will introduce that friction almost immediately. So again, if I go back to my order fulfillment uh, use case, if if the data that I need to secure and the networks I need to secure are in line with being able to intake orders, process them, and uh, and store that data securely, then I need to make sure that what I'm not doing is introducing a number of security controls that will interrupt that flow, whether those be things that are, say, you know, manual controls that someone has to step in and actually perform some type of uh some type of release control, some type of manual flow controls. Manual flow controls and security do not work well when you're trying to do things like automate uh, order processing, for example. Um, and, and that's exactly the type of, of considerations that need to be taken into place when looking to reduce that friction. Um, it's very different to introduce uh, manual flow controls, if you would, into, say, my sending of an email where I may be stopped and prompted to to acknowledge that there's sensitive data in an email because I'm already in a manual workflow of typing an email and hitting send, et cetera. Introducing a small negligible 
uh, flow control in there, if you would, is quite different than introducing a similar one into an order fulfillment process. And so it really is just understanding what that business workflow is and where it is appropriate to introduce um, controls that are heavy, heavier in terms of flow, flow interruption versus not. Um, and again, making sure that they are the appropriate control for the appropriate outcome. If what you're trying to achieve is data security, then you're going to want to ensure that those controls are geared towards that where you are securing access to the data, the data itself, um, and the flow of that data versus equally introducing data privacy, which will also require that you introduce controls that restrict who can can uh, access the data and how the data is processed. Both of those things, again, go hand in hand with the business process that you're trying to enable while securing. Okay. Uh, one that maybe comes to mind uh, as particularly relevant around uh, sort of maybe it's manual, uh, but it's a, it's a necessary process would be uh, two-factor authentication. Um, uh, to me, like my, my motto over the last uh, sort of year and a half has been 2FA all things. Or just right. like if it's available, enable it, right? Um, um, but, you know, a lot of users kind of rightfully push back that they get this 2FA fatigue, especially like if the organization is not sent up some type of single sign-on uh, 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 platform. And basically everything that they touch through the course of the day, they have to stop, probably pick up their phone or a YubiKey or something like that to, to try and uh, uh, verify that they are who they are trying to access this. Is it, I assume that this is just sort of a necessary evil or are there better ways to go about this when you're... you're Sort of having these things that directly prompt or 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 uh, slow down the user as they're trying to get something done. I believe that we may still be in the necessary evil part of the evolution. There is definitely a a maturity currently on the way to eliminate passwords. Um, right, but eliminating passwords doesn't mean eliminating secrets. Yeah. It simply means eliminating the you have to enter in, um, you know, some esoteric number of characters and letters, etc., cetera, uh, and then also be prompted by things. A l- secret elimination can certainly reduce friction in the 2FA process also. Um, or not secret elimination, but password elimination can, can reduce it so that if what you have are simply two secrets that need to be validated, um, that can be a bit quicker, I think. I, I don't know why we would want to get away from 2FA in any other, in any other sense, quite honestly. The, the challenge there is whether or not we can eliminate the, the very manual um, passwords as a secret and replace them with what you mentioned, YubiKey, for example. So, you know, if I, if I have a, a YubiKey and my phone, then that becomes two secrets that I have to have. I have to have my phone, I have to have my YubiKey. If I touch them together, there, there goes the things, um, you know, something to that. End. There's uh, There's been a significant push in the in security world, largely championed by Microsoft these days to uh, to get rid of passwords. Yay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and 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 move towards different types of secrets. If we can if we can go ahead and give NIST yet another shout out this year because they've been busy in 2020. Um, I think they're the only ones getting real work done in 2020. <laughs> um, they updated their digital identity guidelines. Uh, uh, is it a framework? I think it's more of um, yeah, it's just the guidelines paper, right? Um, and that one was 863B. Don't ask me why I know that number off the top of my head. But um, and that one updated from, I guess, about two years ago, adds a lot of new, very practical um, uh, implementation mechanisms that that we can introduce into our systems to that end. Yeah, I like the um, 
the push from Microsoft to to eliminate passwords, I've I've uh, uh, sort of been cheering that that uh, that philosophy on, especially yeah. with sort of a lot of the modern uh, authentication technologies that we have. I mean, like I've got a uh, an Apple device, so Face ID is excellent. Yeah. You know, it it uh, it it just pops up, authorizes me based on my face. You, know, you can even tell if I'm looking at the at the screen or not, which is fantastic. And you know, most computers in modern day have some type of camera either embedded in them or people will have a camera attached to them. So I think the more of the biometrics uh, style approach to this, I think is, is going to be a better future that that ensures uh, sort of an appropriate level of security, but minimizing the friction for the user. Right. And that's exactly what, what the, the goal is. And, and no one would argue that biometrics are, are foolproof and or, you know, hacker tamper proof, um, but neither are passwords, quite right. frankly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, it if the if the outcome is relative same levels of security with lower friction and increase maybe even increased security because you can now have multi factors of authentication then that seems like a sane way to go yeah okay cool so we'll we'll look to wrap up here Gabe we appreciate your your time and your input um, if people sort of are, are questioning whether or not their their security framework sucks and what would be uh, sort of the the initial place to send them what should they look up just you know go go to NIST and try to do it on your own or or look for for some outsourced third party what would be your suggestion to someone wanting to take action against this and improve their security framework I think the first action is to kind of step up to the mirror and ask have I have I looked at this security framework through the lens of my business, not just through the lens of everyone else that created it? And how how does how does my business uh, achieve its stated goals and outcomes while implementing these things? Um, but I would equally then turn to uh, to some of the if, as a first stop. Um, some of the, the the communities that are built around the implementation of these frameworks, um, whether it's the ISSA or, or ISC squared or where there are other professionals that have um, kind of hands-on experience in implementing those frameworks and more importantly, in adapting them to their environments and learning from from how they've approached it as well. Uh, absolutely worth its weight in gold to, to understand and know the frameworks, right. uh, but th- you have to make them your own. Yeah, no, I think that's really important advice because uh, people will often sort of try to jam themselves through a square hole, not recognizing like maybe not all of these are equally important. Uh, you know, right. to, to implement 80% of this is going to be better than just sort of like muscling your way through it and, and just sort of looking around going, you guys think we're secure? I think we're secure. We're probably good, right? I that would be the second half of advice is do not approach frameworks as an end goal. It, it, it is not uh, a finish line. Once once said framework is implemented, now I am secure, which is why maturity frameworks uh, kind of rub me the wrong way sometimes too, right? It's like, oh, I am now mature. It is it is time for me to, to what? I, I don't know what happens after that. I've never been mature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's an important one. It's a, it's, it's a perpetual process. You know, you're, you're never done with security. It's uh, you're safe safer than you were, but you're, you're always working at it. I think that's a really, really important message. Uh, great. Uh, so Gabe, any, um, any clo- uh, call to action or closing comments uh, before, and also you can call out any socials where people can find you if they'd like to connect and, and, uh, and know more. Yeah, for sure. So if folks want to connect and know more, you can certainly find uh, Spirin at Spirin.com. Um, you can find us on, on uh, social at the same at Spirin. You can find myself at Gabriel Gums on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Um, stop on by and check out pr- the Privacy Please podcast. That's Privacy Please podcast. 
podcasts, uh, buzzsprout.com. Um, find that on Twitter and social and all the places as well, too. Um, come check us out and we can talk a little bit more security and privacy shop. Cool. And I'll link to everything in the show notes. So thanks, Gabe. Have a great one. Thanks, you too. Cheers.